I'm April and I'm Steph and you're listening to The Thirst, a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture including film, TV and music as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. You can find us online with Twitter at The Thirst, facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. We're on Instagram The Thirst Pod too. You can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can email us if you'd like to as well. It's thethirstpod at gmail.com and please leave us some reviews sometime. That's quite a nice thing to do, isn't it? Nice reviews. Nice, positive, uplifting, five-star reviews. five star reviews Um, we also have a blog where we share links to things we might mention in the episode that's the thirdpod.wordpress.com also check out the show notes as well because we'll leave a link there Um, this is episode 53 I mean we're running low here we're scraping the barrel Uh, I've got 53 and third a song by the Ramones punk well punk that's good. literally Is that it. it and and then some celebrities who there are 53 were some good celebrities though i think so go on my top choice was gillian anderson oh i knew that when i made my list i put her in there knowing full well that you would cover her lovely jill yeah lovely lovely jill, jill. would you call her jill yeah why did i put celine dion second don't know sure oh actually it was because i was surprised that celine dion was only 53 yeah fair. i thought she was a lot older yeah i thought she was older no offense no offense surprise Surprisingly young. Do you want to do any? Yes, Tony Hawk. I that was the next one. I knew you'd pick Tony <laughs> yeah. Hawk. Yeah. Um, my second was Mark Ruffalo. I knew you'd put that next. My third is Josh Brolin. Uh I did have Josh Brolin on there. Sure. I've also got Lev Schreiber. Nice. I've got Terry Crews. Sure. Steve Zahn, he'll come up later. Guy Fieri? Yes, Guy Fieri. <laughs> Flavortown. Yes. Uh I got Molly Ringwald. Lovely Good, yeah. Dame Norbarn. Lisa Bonet. Lisa Bonet. Daniel Craig. That's my list. Vanilla Ice. Missed him off. Happy birthday. Happy. No, it's not his birthday. Happy 53. <laughs> Happy birthday. Oh, Michael Stuhlbarg as well. Ooh. And Guy Pearce. Michael Stuhlbarg. Yeah. Oh, Friend of the lovely pod. Lovely daddy. Really. Friend of the pod, Michael Stuhlbarg. So, on to some news for the episode. Uh, We thought we'd begin on, I guess, quite a big high, um, the Venice Film Festival. I think we'd mentioned in a previous episode that this was coming up, and it took place from the 1st to the 11th of September. It was the 78th annual Venice Film Festival. Unlike a lot of festivals last year, Venice did actually go ahead, so it was pretty much business as usual this year as well. The jury this year was presided over by South Korean director Bon Joon-ho, who was also joined by an array of actors and other filmmakers, including Cynthia Erivo and Chloe Zhao. There were a number of notable premieres. There was Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, which stars Oscar Isaac and Tiffany Haddish. Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter with Dakota Johnson and Olivia Colman. The Power of the Dog, Jane Campion's new one. Uh, Parallel Mothers, the newest from Pedro Almodovar. HBO's Scene from a Marriage as well had a few episodes at the festival. June, of course. June. David Gordon Green's Halloween Kills, The Last Jewel, Spencer, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. So quite a cross-section of films there. We might come back to some of those in a moment. There were some notable winners of the competition films. The Golden Line went to The Happening by Audrey Dewan. Last year, that prize was won by Nomadland, so it's often one that is sort of seen to, um, I don't know, maybe set the tone for awards season going forward. It is important, though, to remember that Joker did win it previous year so let's maybe not read too much into that. Maggie Gyllenhaal won best screenplay for her adaptation of the Elaine Ferranta novel which uh, her film was based on and Jane Campion won the silver line for the power of the dog. I guess though the biggest news was probably the return of the red carpet 
I don't know about you, this to me felt a lot more exciting than Can. I know we covered Can. Can's already a bit of a weird distant memory to me. I'd sort of forgotten it happened. I think because of the selection of people who were at yes. this event yes. in particular, yes. um, it was very exciting to have an actual red carpet back and to have some very nice looks from some very handsome, lovely people. It was just nice to see people doing stuff again. I think that's exactly what we said with Cam, but this, I don't know what it was about Venice this time around. Maybe it was because there are so many of the big films that we are looking forward to had their premieres. I think because there are so many films that have been really long awaited as well. Like we've been waiting so long for Dune, like Last Night in Soho, Car Counter, Powder Dot, all of these films that have been discussed for such a long time and they were finally here and we were finally getting to hear some reactions to them some actual fucking reviews right so i think that all packed quite a nice punch um i suppose it would be really remiss of us before we go any further just to overlook the jessica chastain and oscar isaac of it all yeah that might have been the pinnacle of the entire thing for me in particular it felt like an extremely oscar isaac heavy festival oh he was loving it wasn't he it was so delightful i Obviously, I'm a big fan of Oscar Isaacs, um, and it was just really nice to see him gadding about. He had three things that across were... the whole pro. I mean, he had quite a lot. He did. He's so a busy he had, chap. So he had Paul Schrader's film, The Card Counter, which I've definitely talked about on this pod. Obviously, had June, and then he was there with Jessica Chastain to support HBO's Scene from Marriage, which is a, a series remake of an Ingmar Bergman television series from the 70s that is just started airing in the states. I hope we get it at some point. But I just... Those two are long-time friends. They both went to Juilliard together. Oh, Juilliard pals. But that moment of them on the red carpet was just... I think also because there was that wonderful shot of it slowed down. I think the slow-mo, because you got to see the extra detail and tenderness in the slow-mo with the kiss on the arm, that really made it for everyone. He's just so delightful. And I actually quite like Jessica Chastain, so... Yeah, he's an absolute dream. She seems really lovely. And they have a very lovely affectionate relationship together which uh i i don't know why some people are surprised by because it's, people have tender relationships yeah so. it was um it was really weird for me because i think if you know anything about either of them you know that they've worked together previously they were in jc Shandor's the most violent year a film i enjoyed from a few years ago and like i said they are i mean one of the things that i thought was quite striking is it, it does feel to me like we're so starved of like any real chemistry on screen that actually this <laughs> right. felt like really emblematic of the fact that like films are sort of sexless these days Mm -hmm. so it's like any slither of like actual sexual tension between anyone everyone goes into a overload but um i think you're completely right yeah, yeah. i d- just didn't really enjoy the weird like oh my god what does his wife think what his wife, his wife was... who was literally in shock elvira lind the queen she was like standing over there she's just hanging out with them too come on um so yes just very much enjoyed oscar isaac gadding about in venice on boats um shall we move on to june cast june yes uh we finally got to see the june cast on the red carpet together which was rather lovely um zendaya's venice looks she's just absolutely slapped wonderful. really like, we started with that kind of blazer and shirt. We had the brown Valentino bubble dress, which was like 10 out of 10. And then the amazing nude gown paired with a giant green emerald, which was... She's such a fox. Absolute showstopper. Um, she looked absolutely wonderful. Less in, into the purple tube piece in Paris. Yeah, I didn't but like that, but that's... Uh, that. move on quickly from that. But yes, we got to see Zendaya with Timmy, of course, yep. who was sporting more sparkly Hayda Ackerman, as always. And we finally got got 
an actual review and a reaction to June, which I think we were both bracing ourselves for. Um, I just thought I I would just give up on existence, actually. I think my heart would have just stopped functioning if people had come out of that film and been like, you know what? It's really not good. I am cautiously optimistic. I feel like we both enjoyed um, Denis Venu's take on Blade Runner. Yeah. So actually, I'm, I don't know, I'm just really looking forward to it now. I feel like I'm, I've managed my expectations and I've read a variety of different things and feeling positive yeah i unfortunately feel quite confident so um let's here's hoping i won't be let down we do know some people personally who have seen it now and who have said it is very good yeah uh, which makes me feel so much better but I mean, yeah, we've had some reviews for that. We got to see reactions to other films that um, did really well, like Spencer, mm-hmm. The Lost Daughter did really well, as you said, Power of the Dog, getting kind of rave reviews. 50-50 reviews for sort of Last Night in Soho and The Card Counter, I think they were a bit split. I feel like, I mean, we may cover The Card Counter at some stage in the near future, perhaps, so I feel like I won't go into my Paul Schrader monologue right at the second, but it doesn't really surprise me. I think that I will probably quite like it but I'm not really surprised that reactions to it were mixed but I don't know I always feel a bit like with festival reactions as well I don't think they necessarily are wholly indicative of no. what the actual film is That's like because you get really like you get a 10 minute standing no ovation right? no yeah. matter what you do yeah exactly so they're either really reactive like raving reviews or they're just like going completely the polar opposite and being like really scathing there's never any like middling stuff so we'll see uh, also really enjoyed JLo and Ben Affleck Oh, yeah, got to see them together being all... Just wonderful. Who knew that was going to turn up in 2021, eh? A highlight of my 2021, I think. I'm not getting back with any ex-boyfriends, but no. um, good for them. Good for her. Um, My final thought on Venice, though, is why is everyone arriving on boats so funny to me? Like, I know Venice is a water city, so... Like... I, I was going to go into the transport yeah. issues there and say there's 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 few other options. Yeah, but, but um, it just makes me laugh so much. I think it looks quite cool. It's cool, isn't it? I it's think quite it's, cool. Yeah, it's definitely cooler than someone getting out of a car and like, walking. I'd arrive on a more of a gondola Would than you? a motorised boat. Um, I feel like we we had discussed this because I think I saw online someone making a joke about like if you were a celebrity has any celebrity ever pretended to be like a gondola driver that's not a gondolier gondolier is it true maybe has anyone pretended to be a boatman a boatman and got a gondola driver yeah and then actually done a reveal and gone ha ha it is me yeah take off and such I would do that we are seeing some things from Venice at some point in the near future so exciting films are back watch this space april another exciting thing that has happened in this month of september and very recently hot off the press hot off the press um september's very busy for us this year as is october going to be so um i feel quite collectively stressed for the both of us Mm -hmm. um we just had Met Gala. We did. We just had Met Gala. The annual Met Gala, arguably fashion's uh, biggest night, took place on the 13th of September as an intimate gala at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Usually takes place on the first Monday in May, but of course it was cancelled last year and postponed this year due to COVID. For those who don't know, it's an invite-only fundraising event and celebration of newest exhibit from the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute. The theme for Met Gala stems from the exhibit, so last time time we had camp which i believe we discussed on the podcast we did and this year we have a two-part exhibit we have in america a lexicon of fashion and in america an anthology of fashion 
Why do they need to? I am not sure. Who knows? Who knows? Tickets are, of course, extremely bloody expensive for this invite-only event. So they're $35,000 a piece. And tables range from $200,000 to $300,000. Pocket change. So very, very, very hot ticket. Uh, So speaking about Met Gala and its theme this year, Andrew Bolton, who is uh, the curator in charge of the Costume Institute, felt it was time to re-examine American identity and fashion especially as it has changed over the last several years due to both political and social justice movements. I just want to quote this because I love how grandiose they make these things sound, not to poo-poo on fashion because I love it very much. Uh, I think young designers in particular are at the vanguard of discussions about diversity and inclusion, as well as sustainability and transparency, much more so than their European counterparts, maybe with the exception of the English. (laughs) Um, I just love it when they bat around words like diversity, Mm. sustainability. I mean, I just feel like that's all very well and good as a monologue to say. Does that make any sense to you? I don't understand any of that as a theme. That as a concept, very interesting, fine. But what we actually then saw... In America. I just, I didn't get the... Yeah, I think my expectations of what in America might be uh, were very different yeah, to same. the outcome. Obviously, the co-chairs for this year were Timothée Chalamet, Billie Eilish, Amanda Gorman, and Naomi Osaka. Honorary chairs are Tom Ford, Instagram's Adam Mosseri, and Anna Wintour. Timothy went live on Instagram about 10 minutes before the American Vogue live stream, so we all apparently sat in bed and watched 10 minutes of him walking around New York and then nice. getting mobbed by young girls. Yeah. which was stressful very very stressful even to watch on my phone from afar uh we had kiki palmer and alana glazer who presented mabel would no actually let's discuss it now i didn't quite work for me personally having only tuned into the first kind of 40 minutes or so because it was quite late in the evening i feel like they both did a very good attempt at covering the red carpet kiki palmer is a delight and i would watch kiki palmer Mm -hmm. like do anything and i felt like she really handled like the absolute lack of information this is what i found quite amazing is that there was clearly no one feeding into their ear like a like who even the fuck was coming up the red carpet because they were trying to kind of obviously fill in the awkward gaps of not much happening and then trying to work out between themselves who was coming up the carpet just even stuff like when Brooklyn Beckham arrived and Kiki was like, oh, where are you from? I loved (laughs) that. He's like, London, but I live in LA. I loved it though. You don't know who this is. Like, I don't think anyone was helping these poor girls out. There was no sense of like being able to blag who these people are or like getting, suddenly getting a piece of information and being like, oh my God, so-and-so, hi. Yeah, that like first name terms. It was like, oh my God, this person that I don't recognise, which was exactly what I was doing. But I did quite like Kiki Palmer's like, not brazenness because I don't think it necessarily was intentional, but just the way that she was just being like sorry who are you i quite liked that i didn't find it cringes in i didn't find her cringe no, but i no. found the fact that they were seemingly just abandoned to yeah handle that's what this, yeah, or yeah. Not prepped in any way mm-hmm. um i really liked the bit where she was talking about when they were talking about timothy's name and Gosh. kiki was like oh why does he say his name like timote he's american like maybe he just thinks he's really cool God, love her. uh rihanna of course hosted the annual met gala after party and really all we want to do is talk about the outfits yes. and i think it is safe to say that for met gala i have an expectation that is extremely high that mm. people should really push the bat out for this this is like the time to go ott like this is the one you go for you don't necessarily have to go for sleek and glamorous you need to go for like batshit at this one it's like the red carpet where you should and 
are almost required to kind of like think outside the box and go a little bit more avant-garde and yeah. weird and different. Like non-functional outfits apply No, because it's like this. a because it's a costume institute based event. Yeah. My personal expectation and and same mm-hmm. as yours really is that like this is not the time to be wearing your extremely bridesmaid-esque evening gowns. Your beautiful Oscars gown. Yeah. No. No, 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 no. no. It has to be I don't even care if it's ugly at this point. Yeah. It just has to look non-functional it needs to be like one of those things that you see on a catwalk and you are like why do they why do they mind this stuff because no one would ever wear that it needs to be this is what it's for yes and also i couldn't quite work out whether there was a lack of understanding with the theme a lack of enthusiasm or whether people were almost feeling a bit timid having not been out for like two years but especially at the beginning before we went to bed because we only saw the early kind of live Mm -hmm. stream there were some really boring outfits it did feel odd didn't it like i think that you're right in that i wonder if there was a lot of trepidation about being at big formal events a thing i didn't necessarily know though however and i did learn this upon twitter.com is that anna wintour has considerably more say over who gets paired with which fashion houses and what they wear than I thought which I thought was very very interesting because then actually when I was then looking back at a lot of the red carpet stuff from last night Mm -hmm. it then made me look at it from a completely different Mm -hmm. perspective with the knowledge that perhaps she'd had her oar in. <laughs> for Anna, stop word. sticking your oar in. Wow, she's like controlling everyone yeah, on the planet. Yeah, it's really... I think you're right, this though. It's just Anna's big party. Anna's big party. I do think that so many people missed the mark for me. And it's not that there were lots of bad outfits. It's just that there was a real lack of interpretation. And I know that the theme is slightly, I don't know, nondescript. But, like... There are so many iconic cultural, like American cultural things that you could have mimicked from a really elaborate costume point of view. And so Mm. few people did. Yeah, so few people. You got a lot of people who looked really nice, Mm. but were wearing basically like a beautiful outfit that you could wear on any red carpet. So like Madison Beer's like green dress or Kaya Gerber's like black, fine. Um, Even like Chloe Halley when they turned up. I was like, they look amazing because they always look amazing. Mm -hmm. But these literally like you could wear these to like a music award ceremony or something like yeah. they're, they're fine aren't they yeah. but there were some do we do we end on a, a bad or do we end on a good what do you think what should we do first um let's do the positives okay so what were some of the the names that and people attending that you did think did very well so right off the bat i think that debbie harry yes was the only person who for me red really, white and blue red white and blue and denim and wearing, it made sense for her yeah, as well. She was wearing Zach Posen. She had a very structured bottom skirt, which reminded me kind of of, of like, not revolutionary age, but because the skirt mm-hmm. itself was like red and white stripe, it just, it did look like a faded, torn American flag. Mm-hmm. And that for me was just like, yeah, okay, cool. So you've, you've taken the theme and you've gone like, I'm going to wear denim, an iconic material. Stylistically, it works for her yeah, as a punk artist. Absolutely. Yeah. Really enjoyed that. Someone else who took the denim him and went with it david byrne of talking mm-hmm. heads um he was wearing a denim suit which i then realized after seeing online was an homage to bing crosby's levi strauss tuxedo oh, course, that he yeah, wore yeah. it's definitely exactly the same cut and exactly the same colorway and that for me was just like yes okay you've seen the assignment mm-hmm. you've gone like cool what can i do which is appropriate for a man of my age loved that we had a few denim people actually we had is it cl who's like a, a korean pop star 
So like yes. her, she had like the denim Alexander Wang, which was like extremely yes. beautiful. And then I feel like Leon Bridges or something was wearing Leon the cowboy had a cowboy hat and a fringe. We had a good, jacket. few good cowboys. I wanted yep. some cowboys. I yep. keep doing the cowboy head cowboy top head to tilt. you. Um, uh, of course, fronted by J Lo. Of course, Lupita also wore a custom denim yes. outfit yeah. as well. Versace. Um, yes, J Lo wore La- Ralph Lauren. She was channeling like frontiers woman Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. <laughs> like she had like faux fur. She had a cowboy hat on she like that to me was exactly the type of thing that i was after that's what i wanted from timothy chalamet but fine i controversially enjoyed timothy's outfit it was fine i thought it was nice but i could absolutely see him wearing that yes elsewhere completely understand your lack of not enthusiasm because you're never unenthusiastic about timothy um i thought he looked perfectly nice i would just like to say that i'm here for his wearing of chuck taylor's on the red carpet yeah, I mean, that is very good. Obviously, a, again, feels like something he would probably do anywhere, but... Yeah, absolutely. As a person who would wear white Converse... Makes every, sense as a choice for this theme. Yeah, absolutely. Stylistically, classic, iconic, American piece of clothing. I think I just wanted, like, cowboy with, like, naked chaps. Like, you know, his bum out. You know what? Style. You know what I was really hoping for? Was he would basically Leather. come dressed as Orville Peck. That was basically the thing, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? We discussed this earlier. We wanted Orville Peck to attend, but... I wanted Orville Peck to not wear a cowboy outfit and just go completely just really normal. Just look completely normal. Um, I also really enjoyed. Um, there was a lot of Tom Brown at yes. the gala. I very much enjoyed Lee Pace mm-hmm. in his shorts. I think everyone. I think the internet has really enjoyed Lee Pace today. Hot. Hot. Um, Hot. Love to see those thighs and knees. Pete Davidson wearing Tom Brown. Yeah, yeah. Slutty nun. Yes, he was a bit himself. slutty nun, yeah. Um, MJ Rodriguez as well from Pose. Uh, she wore, wore Tom Brown as well. So I kind of liked that sort of, I don't know, suited and booted mm. twist on the boring tuxedo. Um, just going back to Cowboy, Tessa Thompson did wear Aris Van Herpen. Oh, yes. Um, which was a very lovely floaty kind of... I, I know, thought that was beautiful. I liked that dress. With the boots. With the boots and the hat. Lovely boots. Yeah, yeah, I did like the boot look for Tessa. I really liked Dan Levy's outfit. Yes. I know... It was a lot, but actually, again, in terms of turning up for the assignment, I think sort of Jonathan Anderson and Cartier, and it was an outfit that celebrated the resilience and the love and the joy of the LGBTQIA community, which is absolutely what we want to see. And I, it wasn't necessarily to my taste, but I oh, saw no. it and I was like, you know what? Actually understood that it's a costume event. And that was a you costume. You have worn a costume. You have worn a well costume. Well done. Congrats. Uh, Maisie Williams made her own costume. So and she was... had like a Betty Boop style kind of thing going on. I don't know if this is just internet chatter or if it's actually legit because I couldn't and didn't have time to find her actually saying it. But someone I saw online said that she said that it was it was influenced by The Matrix, which I quite like. That would be amazing. Imagine if what you took from the theme of this exhibit was The Matrix. Yeah. Well, there Bang we go. Then. Banging. I really liked Iman wearing Harris Reed. Yes, looked incredible. Absolutely stunning. So and elaborate. brought Harris Reed with her, so they, they had both like looked, a little matching duo. They both looked good together. Um, twinsies thing going on. They looked absolutely phenomenal. Again, like you want to make a big statement piece for this event. That was a statement. That is how you do it. Headdresses are always, I think just headdresses are great. Emily Blunt wore a headdress. It was kind of Statue of Liberty style. Yes. Beautiful stars, and she looked absolutely gorgeous uh, i just love a headdress she looked great in that sort of hedy lamar-esque mm. mew mew yeah um outfit i just remembered as well i quite liked uh kristen stewart's chanel i was not do you not i quite liked that it was very rockabilly that was for me was yeah. just like cool <laughs> 
All right. I feel like she's gone quite pajama chic this season. Loves the fifties. Uh, she loves it. I yeah. I thought Chanel was quite a miss. Not that I know what I'm talking about, but um, I think Lily Rose Depp was in Chanel as I well, hated and that, that was quite hideous. It was awful. Hunter Schaefer in Prada was phenomenal. Yeah. Complete with contacts. And yes. Like loves a fucking insane. Like just very, very, very terrifying and cool. Megan Fox. I will have to mention, of course, the red lace uh, dress. Um, Sierra was also in a dress by, is it Dundas? Dundas, yes. And that was kind of shaped like a football jersey and had her husband's number on it. Yes, and it was inspired by some dresses that, that someone else had done previously in the 60s and 70s, which were like football jersey dresses as well, which are so much... I, Brilliant. So that in itself, I didn't necessarily like the colourway of it because mm. it was very... It was green. Light, bright, lurid green. Mountain Dew, yes. But when I was reading and I actually saw the, the influence, I was like, yeah, okay, cool, get it, great. Got it, got it, got it. Um, Rihanna. Rihanna. I... Loved Rihanna. Everyone was waiting for Rihanna. Rihanna turns up right at the end, almost a no-show. Just looked phenomenal, as you just always expect her to do at these things. But like... Cosy. So cosy, but also absolutely gorgeous. Looked amazing. Like in just the most snuggly, cosy, and yet extremely stylish coat. Formal beanie. Loved the beanie. As a beanie wearer, live for beanie wearing season. Beanie with a bit of sparkle. Loved she did it. that so well. Also, um, ASAP Rocky, who went with her. They are dating, of course. Of course. I'm holding everything. I, he wore a quilt that was handmade by a American quilt maker, the name of whom I am going to forget, but I will mention, I'll reference it somewhere, who'd handmade it. That's was reach Someone reached out and was like, could and he chucked help? it on the floor. How, but can you imagine though? This is see that's that's kind I'm of joking. that's okay. the kind of cool thing I like is that it was a bit like a small, independent like person creating it. There was a real well, there was supposed to be a real focus on independence yeah. this year. There were a few. There were a few. Um, so there were some really amazing ones. There were some some misses. Not just like oh, it's fine, mm-hmm. it's pretty, but fine. But actual misses. Um, I've put men. Generally. <laughs> men generally men in suits yeah. should be punished hot but like not not at the Met what are you Sorry. doing like Josh O'Connor what are you doing Ben Affleck come on I mean he just wore a suit he April hot in a suit no he's there with he's... J-Lo like, he doesn't need to do anything he has to do something imagine if he'd worn a cowboy hat you I would... would love it you would have had a full meltdown I might have changed my entire opinion about Ben Affleck and been like you know what Ben Affleck's yeehaw agenda yeah yeehaw yeah just men in suits stop doing it I absolutely detested Camila Cabello and Shawn Mendes <laughs> this is they made me feel so sick I hate them I'm so sorry <laughs> I'm so sorry. Does anyone anyone out there like them? Please tell. I Tweens. just I absolutely Not into it. don't get I, it. But it, she was giving share, which is fine. But I just don't like them. So no, thank I, you. But I also don't think it was a very nice outfit. No, I, I don't think either of their outfits were very nice. No, I could really have done without Frank Ocean and his robot baby. Um, <laughs> like what is that? I don't know. I quite enjoyed it for comedy. I value. really creeped me out. Um, ironic, really. Uh, Cara Delevingne. I just have no time for. I just. No. Casey Musgrave wore this like awkward <sighs> tinfoil skirt. See, what really is really irritating about that is that when the theme was camp, didn't she come dressed as like Barbie? Yeah. It was amazing. Casey, babe. I don't know what happened. And also, is it Rose or Rose? I'm not sure from Blackpink. 
Oh. Uh, actual notorious outfit repeat announced. That was disappointing. You don't repeat an outfit and wear it the second time at Met Gala. Disappointing. That's awkward. Um, and I know the entire internet exploded because she was attending, so very pleased for her. But the outfit wasn't it for me. No, I also did not enjoy what Lord was doing. But also Kim Kardashian. I was going to end on Kim Kardashian. No. Again, I think that's just a general. I think I was more bothered that was she there with Kanye as well. I think Kanye was with her. I don't know if Kanye was with her, but I just that entire thing they're doing at the moment. I'm finding very difficult to get it's my just boring around. so i don't really care it was just um, really funny when she was like stood next to kendall jenner who was dressed in like a diamante like netting type for situ. me that was classic pretty but fine yeah yeah fine and then kim's head to toe like, it did look like she was talking to her silhouette yeah shouting at a black hole is it a comment on celebrity who can say i didn't like it though i hope she wore it all night and got really sweaty anyway so pleased that we had met gala this year that was very fortunate and i'm glad it's back and again that felt like a nice slice of normality however is it just that now we've had heavenly bodies all those years ago that was like the peak met gala and we're just never going to be able to top that again because the outfits for that were just inspired i just think it's all downhill now nothing's going to reach those highs we've had like punk we've had camp yeah We've had that. I'm just not really... You're going to have to come up with something extremely bizarre. What do you want the theme to be next year? Oh, God. Like, jelly or something? I don't know. Jelly, Um, clowns. Clowns, yeah. The concept of capitalism. Food, just generally. I'd like if everyone had to come as a type of food. Yeah, pizza. Just lots of bananas walking down the red carpet. I'd Um, be into that. Yellow. Um, (laughs) The theme is yellow. Yellow, just yellow. Uh, we'd be great at making themes a cult that i'd be quite into that (laughs) the slasher that would be fun going down a completely different anyway send your thoughts what would you like to see at met gala uh the naked met gala that would be my choice for next year everyone has to go nude so moving on to some things that we've been enjoying we thought we'd begin with movies first this time around and one thing that we had been looking forward to well I say we I we talked about it on the episode where we were talking about things we were looking forward to in 2021 and I definitely mentioned it it is Annette 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 so Annette is a musical psychological drama P.S. I did not write that That came from Wikipedia and I left it in because it... How did it? The one... When I looked at Wikipedia, it was down as a musical romantic drama film. Oh, psychological, eh? Um, so put that in in the past? It was me. Spoiler, it was me. Um, so it's, Annette is directed by French filmmaker Léos Carax. The film is his English language debut, but it's his first feature film in nine years since 2012's Holy Motors. The screenplay was written by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks, who worked with Carax to build upon the original story, music and songs the band themselves had put together. The project had been announced in 2016 and it was announced that Carax would be making his first film in English with both Adam Driver, Rudy Mara and Rihanna attached. Michelle Williams then replaced Mara, who, along with Rihanna, had dropped out of the project and who was later replaced by Marion Cotillard. Production on the film had been reportedly stalled due to Adam Driver's Star Wars commitments, but began in various locations in Europe and LA in August 2019. So the plot, loosely, follows a stand-up comedian called Henry McHenry, played by Adam Driver and his opera singer-wife Anne, Marion Cotillard, and how their lives are changed when they have their first child, the titular Annette. Um, The film also stars... Simon Helberg, who is Howard from Big Bang Theory. That is how we know Howard. I'm pointing it out because 
I just can't get my head around that specifically. It also premiered at this year's Cannes Film Festival where Carax was awarded Best Director. Um, in the UK, it was released in cinemas on September the 3rd, a month after its release in the US. It'll also be available on Mubi in the UK in November and in the US, I think you can currently stream it on Amazon Prime. So that's a little bit of an overview there. So what were your expectations for Annette stuff? Well, I mean, I obviously didn't have many expectations except... I quite wanted to see Adam Driver singing into someone's vagina, which was brought up, I believe, at Cannes. Yeah. Uh, that came out of the early reviews. Mm-hmm. That I didn't read any reviews, but I did take note. Uh, I have not seen Holy Motors. I haven't seen Elios Carax's film before. I feel like the kind of bizarre comedy of Holy Motors might be something I would enjoy and I probably should watch it. Mm -hmm. I think it's worth stating that I am not, broadly speaking, a musical watcher. I think I do like musicals with big, memorable songs. You know, there's kind of a difference between like musicals with the big numbers and then there's musicals where singing is just a part of... Do you know what I I mean? I do know what you mean. Anyway, and the thing I do appreciate about musicals is that you can really bend reality and do something quite bizarre and off the wall with it. So I thought that could work very well, especially with Adam Driver in a musical. That would make a lot of sense to me. We have seen him sing before. Lovely. Um, And of course, when um, the reactions first came out of Cannes, it was very much a Marmite film, which... I'm always intrigued by. I had seen the trailer, but read nothing around it. Um, I didn't want to know. So I was going in truly blinded to what may happen. What were your expectations, April? Uh, My expectations were pretty high. Um, I'm a fairly large Adam Driver fan. Um, Are you? Yes. I've literally never mentioned it ever. I'm very subtle and quiet about my Adam Driver fandom. I enjoyed the sort of strangeness of Leos Carax's work. I'm also sort of semi-partial to the work of Sparks as well. So oh com- yeah, of course. So the combination of the three things felt very up my street. Um, I'd sort of read some reactions post-festival, but also didn't want... You any- don't want to spoil that too much, No, it was basically like just sort of getting a real brief overview of like what the general consensus was, but I'd managed to just mute it pretty much on social media because I didn't want anything ruined for me. I'd also re-watched Holy Motors the week prior, so I was pretty hyped. That film in particular is extremely strange and weird. Um, I have very vivid memories of watching it for the first time with our friend Vix and just being absolutely baffled. It's extremely weird, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just got me extra excited. So that's us going in. What were your general impressions after watching it? This is very good. Let's be spoilery. I think I should yes. probably... Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler alert. Yes. Hard to go into what I thought without any spoilers. Very generally. So when when it started, I really liked the first song. So may we start. So Lovely. May we start. A, a classic rock opera sequence. And I really was digging the kind of unlikely relationship between Henry the comedian and Anne the opera singer and everything that comes with that. And I really was digging the on stage, off stage, real life slash mm-hmm. fantasy blend, which obviously sits well with musicals too. So you could get this sense of the operatic story arc building. It was a bit hard to follow to begin with, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of looking for, I was going with it. I was kind of looking forward to it being quite surreal and bizarre. Once Annette was born, <laughs> where do I begin with this? Can I just say that 
all of my avoiding of like majority of the plot, I had gleaned some fairly integral information which had adjusted my expectations and my preparedness for the film. So when the thing that you're about to talk about happened, I was like, didn't blink. I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, fine. Because I knew what was coming. Yeah, I had no fucking clue it was a puppet. Like, none. I wish that I could go back in time and really bottle the reaction that you had when you twigged that the baby was going to remain a puppet because and it wasn't even like it because it was such a zany choice or something it just i just was not expecting yeah. it so it truly was quite a big surprise yeah and i was like i and i was i kept laughing for a good half an hour every time it came on the it she it came on the st- screen because I just kept remembering that I had missed somehow such an integral part. I had no idea that this film centred on a puppet. Uh, and it just, I was absolutely beside myself for quite a long time. It was very distracting. I hadn't told you and then I immediately felt like... Did you think that maybe I knew? No, I just, I didn't want to bring it up because I thought like... Did you if think I... I'd maybe handle it better than I did? Yeah, Possibly. Also, I didn't want to ruin it for you. And I was like fine with knowing that it was a puppet because I, that, you know. Well, it's a lovely audience moment. I'll say that. Yeah. Truly shocking um, because I wasn't expecting that. And then the film kind of switches and becomes the story of this child with a mysterious gift. And it's an impressive feat, like to pull this story and its many acts and its eccentricities together. It's really fucking long. Mm-hmm. For me, it was really long. Yeah, okay. So I got a bit bored. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. I got a bit bored. And because I had no investment in puppet Annette, I just don't think she's cute. Okay, <sighs> it's a matter of taste. I just don't... You know, like, some people don't find cats cute. I don't find Annette cute. Okay. So I had no emotional investment in her, so... No, it's absolutely fine. I mean, it is extremely long, and I absolutely hate going to the cinema and having to, like, nip out to the loo and miss something like I'd, the one part of the film <laughs> I was desperate to see. But not the bit when Annette was born. No. You were around for that. Yeah, so I can completely understand your criticism or comment about the fact that it's long. I just really liked it so much. I find it really funny that I would say that we are usually almost entirely in agreement over Mm -hmm. things and we're like almost polar opposites on this like the thing is though i don't i don't think it's bad as in objectively i do not think it's bad like there are films that are bad yeah yeah i didn't really enjoy it didn't work for me entirely and i didn't really enjoy it by the end no i enjoyed it at the beginning and then i kind of lost interest in it but i don't think it was bad do you does that make sense to you so i don't think it's a shit film about a puppet it just like absolutely was not to my taste by the no and i i almost sort of think that I did know that going in any time that we'd seen the trailer when we'd been every to the time cinema, you've seen a puppet trailer for a puppet film well no it's not even that, that is true. it it's just that I every, like Jim Henson every single time we've seen the trailer recently when we have been to the cinema I'd sort of managed to avoid watching the trailer at home and it was only when we were literally in the cinema confronted with it and I couldn't get anywhere and we would come out and I, I think I kept saying to you like oh I'm just a bit 
I feel like you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. So I felt going in that it was either going to be like... This has changed my life. This is this is incredible. Or, or like, like, I really hate puppets. I hate puppets. Also, the thing with it is that a lot of the stuff that I have now since read, having seen it, talks about the fact that it's extremely weird. It's just not that weird. I Do you know what? I find this really interesting as well. Maybe it's because it's the type of films that we have seen. I think The breadth is. of films. I would not consider this a weird film. No. I would consider it eccentric. Yeah. But again, I think a lot of it makes sense within the context of a musical. Yeah. So people go, oh, it's so weird. This happens. And then there's this extreme scene, you know, they're on a ship and blah. It's like, well, obviously. It's it's really surreal. It's very bizarre and eccentric. I extremely leaned into the strange operatic nature of it. Like, it's very theatrical. Like, if you know anything about Sparks, that's mm-hmm. very in their nature. Like, Leo's character's work is just very surreal and strange. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Claire about it and... She absolutely loved it. And she brought up the fact that she had also heard lots of people describe like, it as Whoa, weird. it's so weird. And she was like, it's just not that weird. <gasps> like, Holy Motors as a film, and I thought this having watched it the week before, like, that film is so, so weird. Like, the thing with musicals, I do think you have to suspend a level of disbelief. Oh, absolutely. Belief. basically the whole nature yeah, of the musical, so isn't it's, it? It's strange to me that people would be like, oh, it's just so odd. Like, it's not, beyond the kid being a puppet. But even that wasn't like... Weird as in I understood the choice for that Mm -hmm. and it kind of made sense. It struck me as funny because I just wasn't expecting it and then my own reaction to it was making me laugh, if you get what I mean. But it wasn't like, oh my God, what a weird thing. It wasn't like a razor head baby weird. It was like, this is a puppet. Like, it's not that weird. (laughs) No, it's just not that weird at all. And I think that was the thing I just found extremely striking watching it. I think I was expecting, like with every new scene and every direction that the narrative and the story took, I was expecting there to be this big like weird off the wall like Mm. oh my god it is weird moment and there just wasn't no and the story itself is kind of you know charts like the rise and fall of Henry in particular and his completely makes sense like it's not a I mean it's a bizarre story and it's like a fantastical story but Mm -hmm. it's not it's not weird it's just not it's not that weird (laughs) no I've thought about it so much in the week since seeing it and Nothing about it to me felt especially weird. Like the trajectory, like you said, it does follow this like balancing equilibrium of like there being two creatives, two mm. artists in completely really, different fields. Like. And as one of them becomes bigger and bigger, the other one sort of stardom starts to decline. And it's how that person, Henry in particular, mm. how he reacts to that and how like the balance is rejigged. And then what happens when you've got this child that's also extremely talented. I kind of liked and, that stuff more. Yeah. And then when he was touring baby Annette and she was flying I was less into yeah, that yeah fine bit. I think but. I think the thing is I'm really enthusiastic about it and I really enjoyed it however I completely understand why someone might not enjoy what's going on or what's happening or the things that it does and unlike a lot of films where I am really enthusiastic about it and I absolutely can't understand why someone mm. would not like it with this I fully came out and was just like I loved it but I completely can get yeah, why someone yeah I don't think it was badly done no it's just not perhaps like your thing it just, yeah it just it wasn't for me um music like what did you think music wise see one of the things I've seen 
talked about is the fact that the songs aren't good supposedly yeah it definitely doesn't fit like the usual musical convention so it's the type of thing that you were talking about at the beginning so people doing stuff and singing yeah so the songs aren't like immediately catchy or hits um a lot of the time it feels like they're very much singing for the sake of singing which i think that's what i struggle with yeah yeah absolutely whereas if it's like wow well great showman catchy numbers yeah if like, you think of things like recently like great showman like la la land mm, like they're very much so different to like that. traditional like mgm mm. style musicals where whereas, you'd like buy the soundtrack and sing yeah them. absolutely whereas this is very much like centerpiece song and then sort of action in between but that sort of song i suppose i think the thing because you've got marion cotillard playing Anne, who is an opera singer mm. i think that that's it it feels like less of a straightforward musical to me and very much more like an opera, opera. yeah which um, makes sense and i feel like it follows more of those conventions i do think the songs work for me quite a lot i've listened to the soundtrack a great deal i was going to ask whether you were going to listen to it yeah i loved it Mm. i just find sparks so intriguing they're having such an interesting year because you've had that edgar wright documentary documentary. um i do think they are an acquired taste in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and i think the film itself sort of mirrors the i guess kind of acerbic idiosyncratic theatrical nature of their songs and performances Mm -hmm. like if you ever go back and watch any footage of them performing live at any point they've got this very interesting dynamic the two brothers whereas one of them's very stern and Mm sour-faced while he's playing and then the other's just very theatrical and over the top and i feel like this for me as like a cinematic representation of them like they're they're very much like hovering in the background Mm. of the film Um, yeah and they're they're like front and center at the start mm. and then they are yeah and i think that's that's sort of interesting to me by all means though i'm not necessarily a huge fan of sparks but i had prior knowledge of them so i think perhaps that has kind of encoded my reaction to Mm -hmm. it but like just musically is so starkly different to that type of i think that was the difference for me i think that's that's one of the elements i can pinpoint as kind of not to my taste yes i just sort of bored of people singing rather than talking and like at the beginning as i said like it starts with like felt like more of a conventional mm-hmm. kind of musical track was so may we start and then it kind of it swerves it can we love each swerves. other so much might be my least favorite song of 2021 <laughs> so moving from music onto story a little bit you mentioned that you found it quite difficult to follow and i think that's sort of intentional in a way it's definitely not straightforward in mm, its storytelling no I just think it that it's so dramatic and over the top. Yeah. And it does have these sort of twists and turns and it is yeah, one thing. Yeah, there's a few twists in it. And, and there's a lot of like, it's very dreamlike in its sequencing. It is, yeah. And I feel like there were times where I couldn't, work out where is what we're seeing supposed to be reality or is this a dream sequence yeah. is that strange i think blurring? the beginning in particular when like henry's on stage and that like some of the really early sequences i was finding a bit confusing for that and then i was kind of like just go with it because i think that's the intention so mm-hmm. stop trying to pull it apart. yeah i also found like whether there was supposed to be and it doesn't matter if there's not really like is there a standout kind of focal point to this film like an overriding theme or is it kind of about a lot of different things does that make sense to you as well there was like a moment where it almost felt like it was going down like a I'd say me too road with Henry and then it kind of 
sort of touched upon that and then went on to something else. And I was kind of like, I'm not completely sure what this film is about a myriad of things, I guess. I wasn't yeah. sure entirely what it was like. Oh, it's I couldn't th- sum it up in a line. No, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? If you try and explain it to someone beyond like it's about a puppet, it felt like a kind of a maelstrom of lots of different points. So mm. like, it, I guess ultimately it's a doomed romance. Yeah. Um, I guess it's about the exploitative nature of art the danger of fame, what happens when you achieve Definitely, it, when you lose yeah, it. Yeah. You know, that balance between Anne and Henry. Mm. When he loses his fame, he sort of believes it's as a result of his relationship with Anne. She, she's a real talent. He's kind of a hack. I guess you've got the martyrdom of celebrity. What's real art? What's artifice? Mm-hmm. Toxic masculinity. Oh, yes. High and low art. High and low yes, art. You've got toxic masculinity. It's a, That blurring of low and high art, actually, mentioning that, I think it's really interesting the way you have got the, the two occupations. You've got someone that is a comedian, a stand-up comedian. Comedian felt like a good choice for 2021 as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got stand-up comedy and then you've got like extremely high art of an opera singer and the sort of pushing of the two people together and how those there's like so little overlap between those no, worlds yeah. so it it's is wild. it's very much that two worlds like pulled together like yeah. the cultural clash of it and then you've got the entire puppet element of it i think i just got a lot i just there's it lost me on. on the puppet yeah. i think the rest of it i found like really interesting mm-hmm. and then the kind of when annette actually arrived i was less fussed about and again as you say it kind of follows that idea of like exploitation of kind of celebrity you know this tiny baby he's being put on stage and blah 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 but like that side of it was like less for me i've read a few really interesting like analyses of the film and the things that it's doing and with regards to the puppet i've read a lot of interesting takes on the fact that like the women in henry's life and people more generally but more specifically are objects are objects they're there to be used and manipulated he doesn't see them as being real Mm -hmm. or autonomous in any capacity and that shifts significantly Mm -hmm. towards the end in that really powerful final scene which i don't know conjures like Mm pinocchio-esque kind of you know i'm a real boy-esque can i also controversially say that i thought the ending just went on forever yeah and this is good lord now we're in here and then now he's in prison oh now he's going to talk to his just went on for bloody ages yeah and i think that's where it gets into like really like operatic lengthy territory it definitely runs away with itself i mean in terms of performances Mm -hmm. for me it's just like absolutely adam driver's film and i know full well that for me and such a large part of why i adored it so much was because I just feel like it really utilises his large, looming, strange presence in a really interesting way. Like, he's such a weird physical actor. The man He's went... probably the most bizarre thing about the film, just him as a, just, as a person. It just uses him to its complete advantage. Mm-hmm. And the thing I've thought about a lot in the time I've spent dwelling upon the film is, like, I just don't think that it would work with anyone else in that role. No. It's interesting because Leo's character often uses uh, Dennis Levant and he's like absolutely nothing like Adam Driver. If you mm-hmm. put them two together, nothing like. But he's someone else that's like strangely weird and physical and does a lot of mm-hmm. like strange stuff with his body and it's like Leo's character's kind of found like a, I don't know, English language American counterpart. Um, but it's completely his film. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's interesting that they had kind of like Rooney Mara and Rih- Rihanna. Can you imagine Rihanna in this film? No. Well, <laughs> Michelle Williams, like all of these female actors like lined up and mm-hmm. but Adam Driver was like... 
fix Adam Driver. Like, and as you say, he's like magnetic, very compelling to watch. Like, obviously manages to pull off like an angry, defensive, selfish destructive person very well so yeah you're right he absolutely carries this film entirely i think he's paired really well against marion cotillard who is like completely light and ethereal and it's funny you mentioned the other actresses that were supposed to be in that role rooney mara's maybe the only one of them that i think could have been i don't know interesting but i don't know I, i think it's just one of those things where you know when you see a film and you're like i physically can't see any other people in these roles Mm -hmm. i think that's a problem for me it's just so fixed towards those two i think they were well they were yeah well selected weren't they they're nice to see simon helberg outside of the big bang theory well done howard is a very handsome man turns out he's quite he's great though he is great as the conductor yes he is very good as the conductor i really liked his conducting scenes as well actually his his scenes when he's conducting and talking to camera like i i really liked those that's that scene where he is conducting Mm -hmm. and the camera circles him and he's doing he's doing a monologue and then he pauses to do the conducting like that's just that's one of a very good bit one of the well con- most well constructed scenes i've seen in a very long time um, see i wasn't as scathing as you thought i would no. be. however it was not for me i just i get it i can completely understand and actually i really liked it it's absolutely one of the best things i've seen this year and it really lived up to my expectations but i can completely understand why somebody would not enjoy it and it made me think a lot about films like this that are doing like strange stylistic genre weird choices that i've liked previously that i can also understand why someone wouldn't enjoy Mm -hmm. at all but there's many films over the years that i've like full advocated for that i've had people watch and just go like this is not for me yeah and that's fine you know it's fine it is fun. It's fine. We got to see Adam Driver do a nice sing song. I saw him do a bonk and some singing in a very long film. Yeah, fine. With a puppet. Great. On to something that I think we hopefully both enjoyed. Halsey's fourth album, If I Can't Have Love, I Want Power, came out on the 27th of August from Capitol Records. So it was written, of course, by Halsey, Jonathan Cunningham and Greg Kirsten, and it was produced by none other than Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails. So a bit of background, uh, Halsey's third record, Manic, came out in January 2020, and I think we both enjoyed particular tracks from it. Loved um, it. We had a good time with it. They had also demonstrated an interest in like a heavier sound by working with Brimley the Horizon on a track called Experiment on Me for Birds of Prey. In early 2021, they also announced their first pregnancy with America screenwriter Alive Aiden after suffering many miscarriages Uh, and this is important because she has described this fourth record as a concept album about the joys and horrors of pregnancy and childbirth. So in June of this year the album and its title was announced along with a preview of one of the tracks and it was also revealed that the album was produced by Reznor and Ross. The album artwork which depicts Halsey as a kind of Virgin Mary figure came out on the 7th of July and then Halsey gave birth to their child Ender Ridley Aiden on the 14th of July. So I think it's safe to say uh, we were both looking forward to this record um, because we both enjoyed Manic and especially with uh, Reznor and Ross at the helm as producers. Um, I think we were both pretty hyped. I was like elated when it was announced that Halsey was working with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Like it was just it felt like such a brilliant intersection of our interests oh it's bang on isn't it like why wouldn't we love it i mean i think halsey's really interesting like have really grown to love them over the last few years in particular i think i i don't know i just wasn't really ever 
that fussed. Like, I really enjoyed some of the singles, but I just wasn't, like, extremely into them. No. And then with Manic, like, I really liked that album and just became, like, extremely endeared to Halsey over the last few years in particular. Yeah, I think I'm kind of the same. Like, I did not have much of an attachment to them and hadn't really listened to them very much. And then I do remember reading that chapter on them in Fangirls. Yes. um, Which I found very charming and I really liked and I thought, this is a cool person person Mm -hmm. they seem really cool and really nice like healthy respect for Mm -hmm. them like it's not really there haven't really been that many tracks that I'm into and then Manic was sort of changed my mind quite a lot yes and as you kind of said like Halsey's has been a pop artist but of all of the pop stars working at the moment this sort of collaboration with Reznor and Ross in particular feels like the least surprising Mm -hmm. like it makes sense that they would work together and I love that Reznor and Ross are of course starting to move into the world of producing pop music as well because I think that's a wonderful combination I really hope this signals like a bit of a shift of pop performers working with them. I couldn't imagine them becoming the biggest producers in the world. It would just be brilliant because I feel like this album in particular, like it really leans into a lot of like Halsey's particular musical idiosyncrasies, Mm -hmm. but also like is extremely like a Reznor Ross record. (laughs) It's an industrial pop album. Isn't it? It's got yeah, all of that texture and that synth yes. and that sort of guitar. It has a very distinctive Nine Inch Nails sound, Doesn't basically. It? Like, even from the very opening of the tradition, like, that sounds like it should be on, like, the Downward Spiral yeah. or something. Like, it, it definitely sounds like them. You can tell it's 100%. them. 100%. Um, and I think Halsey said that they wanted to work with Nine Inch Nails for years, Um and wanted a kind of unsettling production on one of their mm-hmm. projects, which I think they've absolutely done. It's also worth noting that this this record doesn't have many guest features, which Halsey hasn't had since their debut in 2015. But there are like a few musical contributors. So we've got Dave Grohl on Honey. Yep. And we've got Lindsay Buckingham. Ooh on Darling but no guest features in terms of kind of singers and things but sonically mm-hmm. <laughs> musically I just think it sounds amazing it sounds so huge like so big from the outset I've listened to it so much Me in too. the couple of weeks that it's been out and I just I know we were looking forward to it but I just didn't expect or anticipate to like I love it as much as I have Same. and it's so layered and every time I keep listening to it I'm just picking up on like different things and mm-hmm. then sometimes I'll focus more on the lyrics and then on other occasions yeah. I will just sit and analyze like every single Nine Inch Nails-esque moment mm-hmm. on the record and try and think about like where that then sits in terms of like what aspect of Nine Inch Nails discography it's then reminding yeah, me yeah, of like yeah. it's just and then I think about like the work that Reznor and Ross have done together on their soundtracks because there's, there's so, so you many can fit, it's like a yeah. total melting pot of all of these yeah. things isn't it it feels like signature for all of them which yes it's just yeah it's really really great and i mentioned that it's a concept album so this dual aspect of pregnancy sort of the joyful and the horrific and on their instagram halsey talked about the dichotomy of the madonna and the whore Mm -hmm. and they said that the idea that me as a sexual being and my body as a vessel and gift to my child are two concepts that can coexist peacefully and powerfully my body has belonged to the world in many different ways for the past few years and this image is my means of reclaim this is the image the the album image Uh, this image is my means of reclaiming my autonomy and establishing my pride and strength as a life force for my human being i mean concept albums can be pretty hit and miss Mm -hmm. but again i love this as a concept record and those kind of themes of like 
control and autonomy and misogyny and body horror. It's like a body horror record as well, which obviously I love the idea of a body horror pop concept album. It feels like it hits every beat with regards to being like a very good functional well-executed concept record because mm-hmm. like you say they can be quite hokey sometimes and there are some that i have enjoyed a lot and there are some that i've just just found too much and also sometimes they're they they work as a whole but they don't work as like separate pieces yes. and this feels like the kind of record that you absolutely can listen to in one all the way through but you can also pick and choose yeah it definitely works as like a whole listen through sonic piece mm-hmm. together. or you can pick or out you bits can from a playlist out. yes like, yeah completely um do you have any favorite tracks um yes my favorite five because I had to do five because I thought otherwise I'm just going to list every song Um, I'm not a woman I'm a god I think that's my Mm favourite I really like Easier Than Lying I really like Girl Is A Gun very partial to Honey The Lighthouse is just like extremely intense a Robert Eggers song. It just isn't it. Isn't it? Wow. It does sound like that should be like the closing song of the credits for the Lighthouse. Just it's saying. so funny. I also feel like the vocals on Bell and Santa Fe remind me so much of Imogen Heap. Yes. In like yeah. such a nice, satisfying way. Um. So those are my favourites. Are there any in I, particular? Very similarly, I think like the lead of starting with the tradition, which actually like I think opening songs are quite difficult on records and there are so many records that I listen to that I skip the opening song I think the tradition is great into Bells in Santa Fe into Easier Than Lying it flows it's like a dream so well I'm Not A Woman I'm A God yeah The Lighthouse I really like I think genuinely this everything is a straight through banger until Darling which I think is probably like fine and probably like my least favourite of the record but then we're into 1121 and it's really good again so I think that for me is the one song that if I skipped anything it would be Darling. Darling reminds me a lot of songs that are on Manic Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not a criticism it just feels like you could 100% take Darling and stick it it on the earlier album so it's kind of a throwback to that I suppose Mm -hmm. but I think I'm the same as you if I skip anything it's definitely that it's not a bad song it's just the way that it kind of sits in the album I think sort of takes you out of it a little Mm, bit mm. but the way that it then picks back up again I think that's why it sort of serves its function a little bit. Yeah it's kind of like a middle palate cleanser isn't it I guess but I mean it's such I'm so glad that we both got this record to listen to I think it's I just think it's great it's like I've listened to it so much sounds like you have too. I just didn't anticipate being this hype for a a Halsey record. Me neither actually because as I said like I think there are tracks from Manic that I really like but I have listened to this in its entirety a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested to see where Halsey goes next. And that if they just moved on from this and they didn't do another industrial pop record, I think that's fine. Like, it doesn't have to be a change of sound for them altogether. But I just think this is very well done. I would be interested to see what happens next. And I do hope more, as we said, like more pop musicians work. I really, really, really hate this idea of stay in your lane. Like, I hate it so much. This idea of like, why are people like that? moving into pop music mm. like it's just, just I, I hate that so much it's dumb it's so dumb and you miss out on so so many really interesting collaborations because of that level of snobbishness it's just such a boring thing to think it's really reductive and I also feel like if someone like Trent Reznor didn't want to work on a pop record with Halsey just wouldn't like absolutely who's not. making Trent Reznor do anything in 2020 Trent Reznor does whatever Trent Reznor wants exactly and I mean, I'm glad that from the people that I am friends with and follow on social media as well, so like people like to follow on Twitter who are very much like lifelong Nine Inch Nails fans have really embraced this. Yeah. And I I think that majority 
Nine Inch Nails fans like would really like this and it's maybe it's the other way around sometimes that being a bit snobby but anyway just don't no time for snobbishness just lean into it it's great so on to TV uh, I suppose the last big prestige television thing we covered was Mayor of Easttown which was a nice little project for us to spend time oh, on oh god became completely obsessed with it. and I think that after that we were, ju- were just really enjoying having something to look forward to again having something enjoyable to consume so when this TV show that we're going to talk about came around. I don't know, because it's HBO, I had high hopes, but it's The, the White Lotus. Um, so it's an American satirical comedy drama series cr- created, written and directed by Mike White, who's responsible for Enlightened School of Rock, amongst other things. Premiered on HBO Max in July and all six episodes came to Now TV in the UK in August after it finished airing in the States. Features a really, I don't know, broad ensemble cast including Mary Bartlett, Connie Breton, Jennifer Coolidge, Alexandra Daddio, Jake Lacey, Natasha Rothwell, Sydney Sweeney and Steve Zahn. The show was greenlit in October 2020 and filming began shortly after. HBO had kind of directly asked Mike White if he had anything that could be filmed in a COVID safe and protocol heavy environment. How about Hawaii? And he said let's go to Hawaii and they were like sure here is loads of money. Following the show's critical acclaim it was renewed as an anthology series which will tell the story of a different group of travellers during their stay at another property. So the synopsis for the show itself is that the series details a week in the life of vacationers as they relax and rejuvenate in paradise at the White Lotus Resort. With each passing day, a darker complexity emerges in these picture-perfect travellers, the hotel's cheerful employees and the Dillick locale itself. Do you like the prose that I Where did you get Wikipedia, obviously. Lovely. Whoever edited that Wikipedia page did a great job. I always cite my resources. So, like I said, there's a real car of characters because it was a covid production i suppose it's a tight-knit crew and i'm sure we'll come on to the characters as individuals in a minute but what were your expectations going into it did you know a lot about it what had you heard were you looking forward to it you know i mean i didn't have a lot of expectations other than i really like a lot of the cast i've got a real soft spot for sydney sweeney and i'm not even sure why it is yet i'm sure she bullied me in real life but i just for some reason find her completely charming i to agree watch on yep. tv and film all the time just love her um so yeah like sydney sweeney jennifer coolidge connie Britton, like in particular together just is like a menu of fun isn't it mm-hmm. um i also kept getting this confused with nine perfect strangers for a while i was hoping you were going to mention that yes they became quite interchangeable in the lead up to them being released and they've been released at pretty much exactly the same time mm-hmm. so i guess the whole resort-based wellness aspect uh just i was just getting really Having confused a i was like oh yeah white lotus the nicole kidman tv show great Um, And that's got a star-studded cast as well, so I was getting very confused. But, I mean, really, aside from the strength of the cast, I didn't have many expectations apart from it looked darkly comic and I wanted to give it a chance based on who was in it. Um, Absolutely agree. I feel like the only reason I really knew that this production itself was happening is because I'd seen some pictures on Instagram at some stage last year of everyone kind of like, hanging out while they were filming it so 
that had sort of set the seed for knowing that this was a thing that was going to be happening at some point. I myself also got it confused with Nine Perfect Strangers because that had a similar ensemble cast of famous mm-hmm. people in an idyllic setting. They got a bit muddled. They were me. in Australia though, so... Yeah, I was like, oh, wow, that's like But Michael completely Shannon. was the same. I know, I when this started, I was like, where is Michael Where Shannon? is he in his wig? Uh, so I was intrigued though. I'd seen lots of discussion online from critics and things on Twitter. So I sort of assumed it would be good was moderately frustrated that we were having to wait for it yeah i'd seen the kind of i'd seen a few reactions from like people in the states who were really enjoying it and were finding like some shocking moments in it everyone was aghast and chatting about it and i was kind of like what it's not here yet (laughs) this always seems to happen for us though it's one of the things i often forget about is that we did have a period of time where we were getting stuff like the next day so that was always really Mm -hmm. good um but they did not do that for this which was slightly frustrating so i was sort of i don't know just interested i'd not really had any i needed something to fill that like mayor of east town void yeah but i mean very that different, was obviously, obviously notoriously dark and I watch a lot of programmes of that kind so this feels like slightly more lighthearted for me yeah, so I was completely. kind of intrigued and thought like this could be something nice to watch that isn't going to make you feel dirty after watching it absolutely so what did you think about the story the concept the kind of the structure of the programme the fact that it's sort of set in this holiday resort I personally feel like it's often a perfect environment this Mm. kind of concept of like bringing loads of people from different walks of life together and like isolating them them and sticking them in a place yeah Yeah. they can't get out it's an island they're stuck together and to see what happens yeah you're completely right it's pitched at the opening almost as a kind of mystery maybe a crime story with a death at its heart so i assume murder from the the first episode Mm -hmm. and we're kind of led to assume that maybe jake's wife is dead as well i Mm -hmm. would say so it kind of opens as that it definitely sort of leans into an audience's expectations of yep. those kinds of sort of shows and films. And it, it, it definitely keeps you guessing to an extent, but the journey is, I think, more important than the result, actually. For me, it wasn't like the big little lies, big reveal at the ending in the same way. And I wasn't really sure where it was going or how dark or tragic it was going to be. Like, would it shock me or would it just generally make me feel uncomfortable, quite embarrassed? And it's just this spark in Hawaii being frequented by just about every insufferable, privileged white american you can think of so you've got like almost like all of the archetypes there haven't you like the the sort of eccentric single older woman like the all-american family with this kind of breadwinner mother and the sort of emasculated dad and the Mm -hmm. mean girl daughter and the awkward son jake who's like absolutely horrendous loaded mummy's boy and who's like trophy wife um and then you've got the poor staff Armand and uh, Belinda, the wellness therapist, and Paul Lani, who's secretly pregnant at the beginning, and and the resort itself, which is obviously sitting on this Hawaiian island populated by people who are having to perform for its staff and guests. So it's a very, you know, in a very uncomfortable, exploitative way. So as you say, it's like that real pulling together people from very different walks of life and kind of throwing them together and seeing what happens. Yeah, it's very much like a comedy of errors, like a perfect environment for that type of dynamic there's Mm. that like classic upstairs downstairs type narrative where you have got like the affluent people then you've got everyone else that has to wait on them running around in the background yeah fixing like 
messes like a I was about to say like a faulty tower-esque it's not like faulty towers but do you know what I yeah, mean it no, is I that do. kind of it's a bit succession-esque as well in the way that you know you've got that pyramid of power mm-hmm. and the higher you go the more everyone's a bastard <laughs> like, yeah yeah completely and I feel like tonally I like that you mentioned that it does begin with this sort of like murder mystery-esque begins vibe. with the end doesn't well it, it begins with the end that classic you know switcheroo st- mm-hmm. stick the end at the beginning to keep you guessing but then it's also it's been a death it's the way that they arrive on the island the way that you're immediately set up with these like kind of archetypes mm-hmm. you've got the, everyone that you said you've got Brittany O'Grady who plays Paula who's Sydney Sweeney Olivia's her best friend mm-hmm. um, as she so she's sort of posited as the outsider in a way because tagged she's along with the family she's on the holiday. friend tagged away so you've got these kind Kind of I don't know archetypes of of these types of narratives. I'm really glad that it was only six episodes yeah. because it felt so appropriately succinct. And mm-hmm. I think it's a testament to how good the writing is. Is that like you immediately understand who these characters are, mm-hmm. like why they are the way they are mm-hmm. and that's without like minimal backstory oh yeah we don't have a lot of i think you kind of understand their motivations and their backstory without being told it don't yes you? and i i just think i'm so glad that it wasn't any longer than it was because i feel like actually like it didn't need to be i felt like you captured that immediately right from the get-go which yeah. i thought was really clever and i think if you kept it too long trying to sustain that level of like uncomfortability awkwardness well it would just become particularly draining it would become draining and i feel like it would become oversaturated because it is very much like a criticism of like affluent white people Mm. when it boils down to it it is like a tightly wound thing isn't it and you're getting these these people on this island who are almost pitted against each other and the staff are continuously being dogged by microaggressions Mm -hmm. over and over these tiny comments and actions by thoughtless guests and you can kind of feel it building to a crescendo um, is gonna burst and imagine if they did that for like 14 episodes it just feels like the tension was like really appropriately timed like mm-hmm. I like the the fact that you said it was tightly wound like I just it does feel like if it had been like 8, 10, 12 episodes I just don't think the momentum story wise and just the because it just made me feel icky a it's lot of icky, the time it's icky it's embarrassing it's uncomfortable it's funny, but not in like a ha ha ha. You're almost laughing at how awful they are. I mean, there are some ha ha moments, I guess, but you're also laughing out of, it, I don't know, horror. It's funny that you mentioned Succession, actually, because it did give me like a very comparable type of like, oh, this is really stressing me out because these people are so awful. And there are these like all of the hotel staff that are having to just tolerate this constant pecking Amon's like a perfect example of that isn't it like he's like smiling on the front but just having to deal with like everyone's pointless shit all the time and you see that so much in succession as well with Mm -hmm. the people that are running around after like the Roy family and everything so that it just gave me the similar kind of like deep stress Um, performance wise so I've sort of mentioned that I felt like the characters were so well rounded even though we're sort of just thrown into this situation with them um who were kind of standouts for you who did you love who did you dislike who do you feel like was most memorable i am a bit obsessed with murray bartlett now who gives like a fantastic performance as armand so good he's also absolutely gorgeous isn't he so gorgeous and this was like his big quote-unquote big first mm-hmm. HBO role at 50 which is amazing Isn't like keep going there's no age on success you know like so I think as the hotel manager Armand just like absolutely hilarious like 
you pity him you actually all of them a lot of the characters like they're not just you know these are the hate the hateful ones these are annoying ones Mm -hmm. these are the sympathetic ones like all of them are quite a little bit annoying and a little bit awful and some of them are actually quite pathetic as well. Yes. You, you, you're you really not expecting. But Armand was like probably the standout for me. Um, just so brilliant. Just so, so funny. You um, completely get it. Like I just got it immediately. Like after, I don't know, just a few this scenes. Dude trying to hold it together. In a few situations, you immediately get a grasp of like, oh yeah, no, this just completely makes sense to me. Right. Like, and I like who he is. the way he's being treated as just, again, he's an outsider. These these people are outsiders, aren't they? He's mm-hmm. like a gay Australian man. Mm-hmm. So they haven't got time for him. Like he's no. the hotel manager. Like they don't give a shit about him. I just thought he was fantastic. Obviously the kind of well-intentioned but needy Tanya, played by Jennifer Coolidge, like, amazing. She's just so... So sad. So sad. Like, she just manages to bridge this gap between being, like, absolutely hilarious. Like, her sheer presence just makes me laugh. Even, like, I think even her physicality, like, with a look, she can be really funny. Yeah, like, she just gives you a glance or a smirk or just, like, moves her mouth or something like that, and you just fall apart because she's absolutely hilarious and yet there was such a like interesting like emotional tenderness in this role in particular like a dramatic sense that like i I think that you often overlook like how good she is at that side of stuff because she's not often given the opportunity she's stiffler's mum so she's stiffler's mum to us like she's from legally blonde like it's just she's had so many like iconic funny roles and yet here she just was like utterly heartbreaking sometimes mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and uh sydney sweeney as well as olivia an absolute manipulator absolute like cutting teen or young person right like... she is a mean girl she uses her best friend paula as an excuse for her actions you know she's like the oh so woke one like telling Ugh. her parents that you can't do that you can't do that but meanwhile just plotting and using paula as a means to get what she wants just what a bitch I love her. She's so good. She absolutely would bully us in school, but she's just she would so taunt good me mercilessly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really enjoyed seeing Jake Lacey play against type. I yes, because he's the not being a nice he's guy. He's the lovable nice guy, and he was such a shit in this. I hated him. Awful. So convincing. The like, worst out of all of them. Have absolutely met people like him, and just makes your skin crawl. Awful. So brilliant. Um. Like you, absolutely adored Murray Bartlett. Just, just what a performance. Um, I loved seeing Connie Britton. Of course. In something again. Um, I really enjoyed the dynamic between her and Steve Zahn. Yeah, like, so much. It's really funny to me seeing Steve Zahn and stuff still when I just feel like I've been in love with him since I was 10 years old. But he's just, he's just brilliant. It just was great to see him in something like this. So, um finale wise Mm. so i don't know what your viewing structure was like Mm. for this i definitely ended up watching like an episode of a day in a really condensed period of time i watched it pretty quickly i breezed through it in like a week i think yeah absolutely and i wonder if the viewing experience for you like how that was for you because I felt by the time I got to the finale I wished I'd had the opportunity to watch it week by week Mm. because I sort of felt like I was racing towards the end because I'd seen so much discussion and chatter online Mm. about the finale about the finale about Mm. the finale so I just feel like I was absolutely racing through it um did did you you... expect something big like bigger from the finale Um, I don't think I thought something bigger was going to happen i think i knew because of the sort of strange 
tone and when I say strange tone I don't mean like oh weird I just meant because it's like a stressful like knew something was brewing mm-hmm. there's like an underlying tension through each of mm-hmm. the episodes where you kind of just know that like stuff's going to keep going mm-hmm. wrong and then stuff obviously takes a turn with Murray um with Armand like the way that his sort of character arc goes so I knew and and because you begin with the ending yeah almost, you kind of know you sort of know so your expectations there are like something's going to happen, something's going to happen, something's going to happen. And because you get to, like, episode five and nothing has happened, I think I was expecting, I don't know, big things for the finale Mm. in a sense. But it also just felt like the most appropriate ending. Yeah, I mean, it did. It felt like an appropriate ending. And I feel slightly, like, 50-50 on this in that by the ending, you get this big kind of boiling over, this almost, like, catharsis. Like, it's, you know, the air is let out with the big thing Mm -hmm. has happened and then it's almost like the status quo is resumed so nothing has changed this big awful thing has happened someone has died and the people at the top are going to stay at the top Mm -hmm. and they're going to go home from their holidays Mm -hmm. and that makes sense absolutely because that's the entire point Mm -hmm. is that in our world people have to put up with these instances of classism and sexism and racism every single day and then nothing changes. Um, so it completely makes sense that it would end like that. But also, I felt kind of a bit bad about... Ha- I don't know what it was, about whether I, I felt like... There was a lack of catharsis in the fact that, like, none of them get their cor- comeuppance. And, like, it, that completely makes sense because it's showing, like, the way that it is. But I think I almost needed a bit of a catharsis. Like, someone needed to get some form of comeuppance because otherwise I feel a bit bad for finding this funny and a bit entertaining when all of these people have been treated so badly and will remain at the bottom of the food chain. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I feel completely 50-50 on where I lie with it at this point actually having had a bit of distance from it because initially... I was like, well, this makes absolute sense, doesn't it? Because... It's like, of course Paula's boyfriend's going to go to fucking jail yeah, or whatever of course. for stealing. You could see that coming. I didn't necessarily think that... Spoiler warning. I didn't necessarily think that Armand was going to die. No. But also it made sense contextually. So actually when it happened, I was like, oh yeah, this makes sense because the whole programme has sort of been heading towards he this and Jake downward have been doing spiral. This They've been doing this merry dance. dance and I felt like it was either, you know... like. Like, it just had to be that he was going to be involved in some capacity, so I completely get it. Then the more distance I've had from it is I feel a bit like... It feels like the show is attempting to criticise this entire strata or demographic Mm. of person. So, therefore, the whole point is that their lives... They're just going to leave this holiday and it's going to become a story. It's like a big thing saying, like, God isn't, like, our society. We as a society are awful. Yeah. Because this is what happens. These circles, these systems just keep... Yeah, absolutely. And and there was a really interesting uh, interview in Vulture with Mike White where he sort of talks about this. He talks about the, you know, the role that race sort of plays in it and the role of Hawaii mm. as, a, as a whole because it is a, a sort of country that's kind of propped up by the tourist industry and but it's a outside entity in a way. So it's mm. the sort of, you know, local culture being suppressed mm-hmm. because of holiday... Like, that, obviously, that's not just exclusive to Hawaii. That's just no. a global yeah. thing. But I, I have sort of, from time to time, every time I think about it, think trying to get my head around whether it thinks it's being a lot cleverer than it is. Yeah. But also, is that not actually the point? And yeah. is it also just a... Is it also just a, a take 
mm-hmm. on that as a concept. Yeah, quite possibly. And, and I just feel like I'm in this sort of cycle at the moment. And I think actually announcing this as an anthology series kind of ruins it a bit for me in that I think it is more effective kept as a standalone. But as an anthology, what, are we just going to go through this whole dance again? I don't... I, I'm not sure about that. I feel like if it's just going to be this similar dynamic of tourists at another white lotus resort elsewhere shitting on someone else (laughs) what are you what are you really getting at and i just it doesn't need to become an anthology i would absolutely rather watch mike white's take on that type of Mm -hmm. thing than ryan murphy's for example because i think when it comes to like the execution of it mike white is is far better but I just don't need it to be an anthology. No. So that and that was hard actually watching the finale, knowing full well at that stage that they were going mm-hmm. to be doing more of it mm. because it was almost clouding my enjoyment of it because it was just like, well, this isn't a limited series now. I'm then going to be thinking about like, oh, how are they just going to replicate mm. this elsewhere? Which you know maybe it's just because this in itself is a COVID production. Mm-hmm. I hate the term COVID production, but because it was constructed purely because HBO needed programming mm. and it was something that could be put together mm. in that environment maybe they didn't bank on how successful it was yeah be, i don't think they did but it's just I don't know. bloody tv loves an anthology nowadays I, I can't believe how big anthology programming has become because it was just absolutely not isn't it bizarre before. but it's, i mean as a whole i definitely enjoyed it it's really good it's really really good i absolutely breezed through it i enjoyed it and felt mortified by it it's very effective do and you, funny do you think you'll watch nine perfect strangers I keep meaning to start it. I just think the timing of it's so funny, isn't it? So for not, I mean, I assume it is just bad timing. It's bad but timing. They almost came. It felt like they almost came out to the day, like the same. It was so similar I... um, for us in terms of release because I think they pretty much both dropped yeah fast, it's, around um, the same time i know a couple of people that have been watching nine perfect strangers and they are different yeah from what i can glean but this is the timing of it I, i'm gonna have to do like six months away from what yeah i don't think i can watch another no retreat based no no more retreat based things no more you. wellness for me thanks no, thanks um but absolutely do watch the white lotus yes So finally, we thought we would wrap up this episode by talking about a film that we most recently watched together at the cinema, and that is uh, Nia DaCosta's Candyman, noted, directed by Nia DaCosta, not Jordan Peele. It's Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Worth clarifying. Thanks, Cineworld. It's Nia DaCosta's Candyman. So it is a 2021 supernatural slasher film directed by Nia DaCosta and written by Jordan Peele, Wynne Rosenfeld and DaCosta. It is a spiritual sequel. It's been described by DaCosta as a spiritual sequel to the iconic Candyman film of 1992 directed by Bernard Rose. Some would argue it is a direct sequel, but we listen to Nia DaCosta. She says it's a spiritual sequel. Also, I don't think it necessarily acknowledges the earlier sequels at all. So it's kind of a a reimagined sequel. You'll see where I'm going with all of these terms (laughs) later. So the film stars uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, Tiona Paris, uh, Nathan Stewart Jarrett and Coleman Domingo, along with Vanessa Williams, Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen, who reprise their roles from the original film. A brief premise. So this is taking place in the present day, 27 years after the events of the first film and after the last of the Cabrini Towers are torn down. 
we meet artist Anthony McCoy, who moves into a fancy loft in the now gentrified Cabrini with his girlfriend Brianna, who is an art gallery director, very artsy. And they hear about the urban legend of Candyman, and Anthony starts to use the story of this hooked man who puts razors in children's candy for his latest set of paintings. Uh, but unfortunately, he unknowingly opens a door to a complex past that unravels his own sanity and unleashes a terrifying wave of violence. That last line was not my own synopsis. <laughs> Jordan Peele was attached to this project as producer since September 2018, and Nia Costa was announced as director later in the year in November. It was rumoured le- that Lakeith Stanfield was originally eyed for Anthony McCoy. Thank God that didn't happen in light of recent months. <laughs> Uh, importantly for many fans Tony Todd also gave his blessing to this film which is also lucky because he later (laughs) reprised his role and is in it Candyman was originally scheduled to be released on the 12th of June 2020 uh, by Universal Pictures but due of course to Covid it was pushed back and back until it eventually came out on the 27th of August this year so let's talk a little bit about expectations I know you have seen Candyman before but what were your expectations going into this film so I watched Candyman for the first time last year whilst unwell good being... time to do it yeah I had no reason for having not seen it before so what there's a lot of time? films in the world there April. are too many films I'm always saying that um, so it was a good excuse to sort of spend some time with it and also because I knew that hopefully this version was coming out at some point soon um I enjoyed the original Candyman so going into this new one I was interested to see what they were going to do with it I had not seen any of the other sequels though that doesn't necessarily seem relevant um but I don't think I even realized there were um, as many as them I think there were two yeah I I didn't even realize there were any love yeah like the most handsome just good lord i don't know i think i suppose like 75 percent of my expectation for this was just like i'm gonna, gonna watch to, him being extreme just gonna get him to watch him being hot he's just wonderful isn't he so i don't know i just my expectations for it weren't particularly lofty i was hoping to have a good time I was slightly confused by the release date of it all because in june yeah it just felt like isn't this not an october film this is an october film yeah i know exactly what you mean yeah so those are my expectations heading towards it um i am a fan of the original film i haven't seen the sequels either so don't worry oh, there we go. obviously Candyman, the 92 film occupies quite an important point in horror film history is pretty much a film with one of the only probably the only black slasher killer one of the only black killers to my mind in horror films to that point and it's a story that's at once very effective as a slasher film but also does that thing that lots of very good horror does which is kind of shining a light on yes. society including that vi- the violence that's inflicted on black bodies and that huge disparity between white and black communities and cities like Chicago obviously I think that was the thing that I found most striking about watching the original for the first time there's a lot in there which I just didn't anticipate mm. that actually there was going to be as much like interesting social commentary mm. that there was mm. so actually I suppose that was my probably expectation yeah definitely it is it certainly is not like a run-of-the-mill slasher to that point especially however it is a film that is directed by a white person mm-hmm. and it's framed through the experience of sort of Helen who is that white yep. far more middle-class university student so having Nia Costa, a black woman and Jordan Peele in particular for this film 
obviously just felt like a natural fit and quite right and I liked the idea of it being a spiritual sequel rather than a remake so you've got because a property like Candyman you just it's one of those films I, I don't know whether you should really touch so doing a spiritual sequel means you're going to draw in like a whole new generation of viewers and also encourage them to go back and watch the original so that sounded great I like an idea of a spiritual sequel lovely also I did really enjoy the trailers particularly the use of Say My Name the remix for yes. Destiny's Child reminded me sounded so sick reminded me of when they remixed I Got Five on it for us as well oh, so yes, those trailers those course, remixes in those trailers are effective. so good but yes that's my those were my sort of feelings beforehand we've waited to see it a little bit actually due to just busy lives so for a lot of people I know had seen it first so it was a bit delayed but what were your sort of general feelings about this film and its kind of story and its relationship to the original? Um, I really enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. I think that it's interesting that you mentioned that the original was directed by a white person mm. and was obviously from the perspective or more focused on um, the white protagonist because this is like absolutely not the case for yeah, the yeah. new version. And I really liked that because I felt like it just would have been really inappropriate in 2021 to mm-hmm. be doing anything else with a story that is so focused on in hindsight it seems weird that that happened in 92 of course it happened in 92 but do you know what i mean that wouldn't i don't think that would be appropriate today would it no absolutely not the positing of that particular story with that particular protagonist just felt like it would have just felt so extremely dated to try and tackle that now so i'm really glad that there was that perspective shift and that there were so many predominant black leads in Mm. it like it was really brilliant to have that perspective shift and then just to sort of I suppose talk about like the concept of trauma and the use of black bodies like more widely Mm. like it I, I thought that focusing on things from the perspective of an artist and his partner who's an art dealer just the idea of of them occupying what is probably traditionally Mm. unfortunately archaically like a largely predominantly white dominated yes, media. Yes, you could get that you could get that sense as well from the gallery openings. Yeah, and the... absolutely and I suppose in that regard there is lots in it about like who gets to tell these stories, mm-hmm. who exploits these stories for their own gain and I feel like actually like looking back at the original, obviously like Helen's a researcher and she's mm. doing this study. She finds into... it fascinating Yeah, she's she? doing this study into like folk tales and mythology all of that type of stuff that, that is coming from specific or is rooted Mm. in specific communities and seeing this new version made me think a lot about the idea of like who has ownership Mm -hmm. over these stories who has the right Mm-hmm. whatever that means to be telling these stories mm-hmm. and I thought that perspective shift was really really interesting mm-hmm. particularly because you do then see things that are sort of from the same time frame as the original mm-hmm. sort of thrown back so you've got with Common Domingo's character you've got someone who's obviously experienced the other side of it, experiencing the legend mm-hmm. from a childhood perspective mm-hmm. and has sort of grown up with that and you are forced to sort of look at things from the other side mm-hmm. and that just felt like a really interesting interesting choice yeah, like yeah. narrative shift 
and that felt really cleverly executed Mm -hmm. in a way if that makes sense it's a very sharp film isn't it I mean Mm. it's only 90 minutes which is very short Mm. for the dream yeah it's kind of sharp and simple and effective and it as you say it kind of brings the Candyman myth to the present day and it draws successfully sort of draws parallels between the 92 film and this film and issues of racism and class in particular and the fact that things don't change things Mm. shift that you know those those power plays don't change in particular and I like that you mentioned the kind of the storytelling who gets to tell the story and the idea of I just love storytelling generally as a concept like stories within stories yeah too like that's quite a gothic trope the kind of like an easter egging like a story within a story and it worked really great with the puppets as well yeah oh I loved that I really enjoyed that was really cleverly done I think Nia and Jordan had said that they didn't want to do flashbacks at all they found Mm. them cheesy so instead you've got this sort of puppetry aspect which I thought worked really well like it gave you an overview of the previous film and it gives you that sense of the sort of the cyclical nature of the violence but yeah no cheesy flashbacks no I feel like those scenes with the shadow puppets in particular just felt like it's you just mentioned the idea of storytelling and and the way that stories are passed down from generation to generation and that felt like it was just sort of like quite nice little interludes with Mm. voiceover where you're actually seeing the action because it felt like it was taking these like very traditional oral storytelling like visual They're storytelling like campfire stories, aren't they? Yeah, and just actually sort of not a twist on it because that's not what I mean at all, but no. just actually showing how these stories are passed down from generation. Yeah, to you generation. don't watch it. You don't watch a reproduction, do you? To catch no. up. No, and I feel like oral storytelling traditions exist within communities historically obviously but it just felt like it was just very clever the way that it was telling this particular story as the type of thing that would get passed down rather than it being it fits, just written down it? it completely fits. It fits yeah the theme of gentrification is obviously very it's very pointed in this film yeah. so it's like from the very beginning like even anthony and brianna are sort of benefiting from being able to buy a very nice apartment and work in the arts and mm-hmm. things like that but like i would say it's not a subtle film in no. terms of the social commentary and i suppose it's one of the things that i think works particularly well and I don't think it could have existed in any other way without it being explicitly pointed because if you are going to be bringing the story into a more modern context in this particular area of Chicago it feels like it's inevitable that you are going to have to touch on these things so I don't think it could necessarily exist without being slightly on the nose Mm -hmm. I completely get that as a valid criticism in a way yeah I can kind of of see that but I also completely agree with you I think it was appropriate and I think it worked um I love the way that it was shot. I thought like the lots of mirrors and reflections and the sort of the framing and the fragments of like the monster hiding just mm-hmm. out of view. I thought that was very creepy. There were loads of mirrors, the use of so, mirrors yeah, so and much windows. mirroring and you could see Candyman like like a corner, like Ugh. a fraction of his face hanging just out of shot. It's just absolutely like blood curdling. It was horrible. Um, and I really like the body horror aspect obviously mm-hmm. as a continuation of the original kind of this transformation of Anthony as he's It was really unsettling. It's gross. It was really interesting to have this very physical manifestation of the way that, like, he absolutely can't stop picking away at mm-hmm. this story. Like, he's trying to get to the bottom yeah. of something. And yet that's almost having, or it's literally having a very physical rea- reaction in his very being. Yeah, like, it's in like his breaking body. him down, yeah. isn't it? And I, what did you think of the ending? Because I think these things can be quite hard to land sometimes. I think the thing that I found with the ending is it, it's not that it's suddenly got really complicated 
but I felt like I had a fairly good grasp of what was going on. Was it the Coleman Domingo element that like, yeah, made it more complicated? It, it f- like he kind of switched and... It felt like it suddenly sped up and all of this stuff was suddenly happening at once mm. with the Coleman Domingo stuff and then with the... I don't know, it just it felt like things rapidly escalated mm-hmm. and it was only when I... Like it wasn't that I didn't understand what was happening in the moment but I had to get home and then read wikipedia basically why that suddenly happened just to clarify like what was happening and why it was happening my one criticism of this film as and from what i gather a lot of people had it is that it could have been like a good 20 minutes longer yeah and actually if you sort of stretched that end 20 minutes into 40 minutes you actually might have I never ask for films to be longer because I don't think films need to be longer as a concept societally. But I think keeping a horror film within two hours is absolutely fine. It did feel like there was just something missing. Yeah, I don't know whether it's... I think I'd say slasher films are sort of traditionally in the 90 minute bracket. So it does kind of make sense. But I was almost surprised that it was that short. I never asked for more exposition in anything, but But I just would have have liked more exposition a little bit. But overall... Great time. Had a great time. I had gone into it just feeling like I had, apart from the expectations I'd mentioned previously, I didn't want it to be anything particular. I just wanted it to like not be bad. Yeah, and I think the integral part was like the handling of its original kind yeah. of the 92 film and how it was going to pay sort of homage to that. Or, I mean, it very cleverly knits it pretty much keeps the original as the original. Like the story of the original is fed through into this yeah, very accurately. In. Like it's if you go back, you know, they, they do blend together very well and it all makes sense and nothing's really been changed. It is a continuation in a lot of ways. So I think they did that really well. It felt like it runs parallel beside it in a way that kind of like fully respects the original source material. It sort of respects that and kind of understands. There are like strands running between the two, like parallel. Just little things like, you know, when he goes to the the university library and he like picks up Helen's research documents and stuff like that. So it's kind of like it is, you know, there are direct callbacks. Mm -hmm. But then similarly, like, I think you could watch it and that wouldn't necessarily... It wouldn't matter, would it? No. No, it wouldn't matter. Like the film as a standalone, I think makes sense as well. But if you enjoy it, you could go back and watch the original. So I, for one, was pretty relieved and happy. Just a good time. Had a good time with it. Good time. Good job, Nia Costa. Yeah. Something I wanted to touch upon before we finish as well is that I... I mentioned that Candyman's been described by DaCosta as a sort of spiritual sequel or successor to the original. It's not a direct sequel, although it kind of feels like it is now I've been talking about it, (laughs) but fine. But also it's very much not a reboot because there are threads from the 92 film that are sewn through. It's inspired by, alludes to, I'm not sure, but I got to thinking about the sort of growing popularity of words like spiritual successor, (laughs) reboot, reimagining. They're all very much intertwined. I get them very confused, but this is becoming more of a thing now when we're getting, you know, old property, film property, recreated and reinterpreted. Sometimes not even older property, actually. Sometimes it's just a couple of years down the line. But, you know, to good and bad results, we're getting a lot of this stuff and it's becoming part of our kind of lexicon now. Mm-hmm. And I found a very useful article that I shared with you by Genevieve Kosky. Oh, yeah, it was good. They wrote a very helpful guide to terminology back in 2015. And she defined the reboot as film properties that have extended beyond a single movie. So it's more than one movie and have thus established a continuity that the subsequent reboot throws out in favour of a new status quo. So that's kind of the reboot. You've got remakes, which are kind of updates to a single film. Mm -hmm. 
and then you've got reimaginings which are a whole a new thing which are kind of like a remake but something fundamental has changed there's just so many words involved now uh, and they're all becoming very mixed in my brain but I do just think it's very interesting that these are things that the film industry seem to be doing more and more of like to my knowledge sort of spiritual sequel in the context of films if you google it it's pretty much just this film Candyman like, I think spiritual successor is more of a term that's sort of more broadly used for other things but mm -hmm. like spiritual sequel is like a, a film thing that's just kind of emerging yeah. and is I find it really interesting because for me it's just like words or phrases to kind of excuse the constant like churning out yeah. or relitigating of mm. existing IP and I feel like we talk about this often the fact that stuff it feels like now things can't just exist mm -hmm. on their own like it's funny you know having just spoken about white lotus it's mm. like a thing can't just be a thing anymore it has to be like oh well what can the spin-off be and like mm -hmm. can we do a different version of it and i feel like it gets bandied around a lot when talking about things like the MCU and I was going to say that that seems like to be that. like a big area Star for things Wars. like reboots and reimaginings. Yeah, because all of the reboots and reimaginings or reboots, sorry, that I could come up with were not necessarily effective, but ones that like are the most notable have been sold. Like Batman. Yeah, so it was Nolan's like Batman. it was like Nolan's Batman trilogy, the recent reboot of Spider Man with Tom Holland, which of course mm -hmm. is a reboot of the Andrew Garfield. Spider-Man which was a reboot of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man of course all of those by the way have happened in the last 10 years, years. <laughs> yes. so that in itself is just bananas and then you've got things like X-Men First Class was a, a reboot of previous X-Men trilogy which of course is just comic book IP the most recent Star Wars trilogy mm -hmm. you could consider that a reboot mm -hmm. you know so it's yeah I was kind of because I was trying to think of reboots as well and I was like oh Planet of the Apes is sort of a reboot yep. except it's sort of not because it's a prequel but I'm sure they packaged that as a reboot at the time yeah, well, but it's not a reboot because it's not going anyway but it's that it's that milling of IP and I often it was really interesting to read that piece from Vox because actually it was interesting to see the delineation between actually sort of technically what the differences what are. are between the three yeah. of them and I'm not adverse to like remakes we've talked about remakes mm -hmm. as standalone pieces of art on the podcast previously so I'm not necessarily adverse to it but it just does feel like there is this constant going back on things within a few years now which feels mm. like a very modern sensation yeah. that almost feels like it's sort of like there is this list of stuff. <laughs> Which shall we reboot? Yeah. yeah it's like, like it's, a re it's a really pessimistic view, isn't it? But I do feel like that as well. And you start to feel like it's a bit of a money-making The snake feels circle. like it's eating its tail. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's, absolutely. And it's hard, because there are really good examples of that as well. I feel like I lean more... If these words are used, and to be honest, they're so bloody interchangeable that I... <laughs> I kept on getting them no, so did myself. I. I feel like I've got a handle on them and then I haven't. But I feel warmer towards the word reimagining than I do anything else mm -hmm. because at least that feels like I'm all for the re-envisioning or reimagining or sort of pulling, teasing apart and reinventing any kind of material, really, whether it's like a book or a film mm -hmm. or, to, you know, if it's done with love. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it's, absolutely. You're taking that source material if you love it and you're reworking it, representing it, reconfiguring it in a new way 
for new audiences that does something different I think that's really cool and I fully I mean we talk about this all the time like the interconnectedness of everything like nothing's original property anymore there's no original idea everything is a copy of a copy yeah and I, I'm happy to embrace yeah, that fine. so a reimagining of something feels kind of fine to me although of course they can just use that in the marketing blurb to hide a remake for me now which is annoying but you know that kind of thing I I, I like the concept of a reimagining a reboot reboot for me feels very much that's a remake it, well it, it for it's me not, it doesn't it does even feel, feel like a remake it just feels like a money-making endeavor mm. like the thing with spider-man is that fully without getting into the intricacies of like who owns rights to what at this point the reason they kept making spider-man films is because they had to keep doing it Mm. otherwise they would lose the rights Mm. so that in itself is just a money-making endeavor Mm. like i know people that are particular fans of the andrew garfield and emma stone portion of that franchise i was largely ambivalent towards good luck to you yeah but you know i have attachments to the toby Maguire ones in that those were some of the first superhero films i saw Mm -hmm. but then i really think that Tom Holland is a great Spider-Man so but those feel like money-making I mean everything's a money-making endeavor so Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm getting at but it just feel like the constant milling of a reboot Mm -hmm. feels like it's very much just a cash cow there are remakes that I'm not adverse to they're some of my favorite film Ocean's Eleven it's one of my favorite films in the entire world that's a remake Mm -hmm. it's a remake of a film from the 1960s you know David Fincher's Girl with a Trangum Tattoo Mm -hmm. as a remake of a Swedish film which is based on a book you know like um, yeah. Star is Born we spent a lot of time talking about Love Star that. is Born that's like the third or fourth version mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. that particular story that's been told Heat Michael Mann's Heat is a remake mm-hmm. of Michael Mann's own TV movie LA mm-hmm. Takedown so like Scorsese he's not above no there's a total remake there are really good remakes and some of them I do think like it's interesting that you mentioned the idea of actually like you can do new and interesting stuff like I uh, was thinking about Scorsese's Cape Fear mm. recently because I've been on this real De Niro trip. Love De Niro um, Cape Fear. I really like De Niro's turn in Scorsese's mm-hmm. Cape Fear. I think that's a really good retelling mm-hmm. of that particular mm-hmm. story. The original is great as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but even Scorsese is not above the idea no, of no. doing a remake and actually kind of taking a film and going like, what can I do with it? Um, but everything is a copy of a coffee. Maybe we just need to call them all remakes and stop trying to fashion them as reboots. But I, I think there is a degree of sniffiness around the concept of it, in yeah. a way. Yeah, there is. Rightfully so, to a point. Yeah, it's half and half, as you say, isn't it? Like, part of you wants to say, like, it's a cash cow. Part of you wants to say there's, like, an, a legitimate time. I would not say that there is never a time for a remake. Leave all original properties as original property. That's not how I feel. The thing I worry about with it, though, and this is particularly interesting, because it came up when I went to the cinema recently is that like the more that we regenerate IP content Mm. whatever then it feels like we then have to have another version of that thing because a person a group of people point out that there's a flaw in the thing that was recently remade so the reason Mm. I bring it up is because I was thinking about Paul Feig's Ghostbusters which came out a few years ago so with the all female that was a good reboot I really enjoyed that version of Ghostbusters I thought it was really fun it was really lovely to see people like Kate McKinnon Mm. in those roles that itself obviously was a remake of the fairly iconic mm-hmm. 80s, 90s Ghostbuster mm-hmm. series. But now we're getting a version with Paul Rudd 
because everyone on the internet was really angry that they made Lady Ghostbusters. Yeah. So Jason You've Brightman got to solve that problem now, haven't decided you? to then take it upon himself mm. to like almost reestablish the equilibrium. Should we, should, yeah, should we write those wrongs? And it just like that in itself just feels like well, the, at what point do we stop mm. with all of this stuff? And there are also so many amazing emerging filmmakers out there with original ideas and well, an original idea that isn't a remake, a direct yeah. remake of something, and we're not giving any money or time to those people it's but we're so... giving a lot of money and time to these reboots and remakes of franchises and films that like are very beloved so we're just kind of turning out more and more of the same thing i do find it interesting that at comic books and horror films there are so many well, examples that's the that thing... horror films are across the board here all the time they're constantly being remade it feels very genre specific a lot of the time so you get the superhero sci-fi kind of re mm-hmm. franchise going back over those things it feels very horror specific often it's funny that you mention that tendency to remake like foreign language non-english language Mm. films for an english-speaking audience that seems to be the thing that often happens as well like you get a really really Mm. successful that you know when parasite came out for Mm -hmm. example parasite like resounding success mm. award-winning across the board and then there was the news that they were going to be turning it into a tv within like two seconds yeah and Mm. you know that's not that's not a novelty that happens so consistently yeah. but it does seem to be like it's very genre specific but it does it does make me worry that there is an entire generation of filmmakers of creators whose original because it feels like we so infrequently get like original content there's no bank on original ideas original. now is no. there no and that's no. my worry is that everything is just eclipsing like those you know it's not that i I think it's bad that someone like Chloe Zhao for example is going to be directing a marvel film mm. but it's like I would rather Chloe Zhao got to direct something mm-hmm. different, yeah. like an original piece. Like just, I don't know. We do also end up, and this, I mean, this is not, this is the opposite to Chloe Zhao, but we do often end up throwing money at the same directors as mm. well. Like yeah, the completely. same club of directors um, to remake these things over and over again. So you're getting a lot of the same names, but not to end on a pessimistic note, but I do, I, I just find it, it was really interesting when this film came up yeah. as a spiritual successor and you think, I mean, it's interesting that comes from DaCosta, actually, but these words are being used so much now in, like, marketing copies. It's such a repackaging. It's how you repackage. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't feel that this will be the last time we'll have this discussion. Like, it feels like this is going to just keep continually coming up. Do we reach a point of saturation? Well, that's my worry, is at what point does this stop? Like, at what point does it stop? Is everything going to be a franchise at this point? That's the thing as well, is franchising is a whole other thing. Like, we can't keep anything as just, like, a, a standalone nowadays. It can't just be a single thing no, it's that be isn't thing. remade or isn't expanded or isn't... Everything has to have a spin-off. I mean, this that's what we've been talking about with all the Marvel stuff we've mentioned. And, you know, it came up when uh, with June. Like, the idea there's going to be a June prequel series or yeah, something. Already. Like, it's already. It's like, we haven't had the first part of June oh, yet. Gosh. We don't know if we like it. So it's given me a headache. But anyway, lots of food for thought. And really, I guess in summary, because we could talk about this forever, let's give a little more time to things that aren't remakes or reboots or sequels. Please. Please. So after all of that chat, uh, our obsessions of the week. What is your obsession and or of the week? 
and ors of the week. Yeah. Uh, my obsession and ors of the week. We've just had the teaser trailer for Don't Worry Darling. Oh my God, we have. The five second teaser trailer. I mean, it's it's like a teaser teaser trailer. It's very, very short. Um, but we did get a split second in which Florence Pugh and Harry Styles are tongue waggling. They're swapping saliva. Good Lord. Um, and I loved it. It was probably the least flattering shot of Florence Pugh that I've ever seen. Um, but... She's great. She'll I, I just over wanted it. to get right in there with the both of them anyway. I have no idea what to expect from this film at all. Obviously, I'm we care deeply for Olivia Wilde yep. and loved Booksmart. Yep. But I have no idea. I have no idea what to expect from this film or whether I will like it or hate it. Or I, I have no idea. And I cannot believe we have. I cannot believe we have to wait another year. However, I can't wait to watch Harry Styles snog. I am one of my fearf- favorite actresses. I am fearful for it. But I will enjoy it. That's my take on it. I hope there's lots of snogging. There bloody will be. What's your obsession of the week? Uh, deeply stuck in a 2015-esque Oscar Isaac and Adam Driver K-hole. It's like Star Wars has been rebooted all over again. A reboot? A reboot of my deep Poe Dameron Kylo Ren brain space. It's just been a very stressful week for me in terms of those two. I think my favourite thing is that it's been a stressful week, but it's actually only Tuesday. So It's only Tuesday. Uh, also, Baby Annette. Baby Annette. Baby Annette. No, I can't. I, I, I just... When, she's not cute. When will I tire of sending you Baby Annette pictures? You're such a horrible troll. I cannot believe we didn't even talk about that boinking scene in that film. Do you want to just briefly touch on it now? It's aggressive. Do I want to briefly touch on it? I do want to touch on this uh, boinking scene. If you're listening this far in... There's a lot of muscle and sinew. I just did not expect... I mean, we watched six seasons of Girls and I'm finishing my Girls rewatch. You'd think you'd be like immune or at least used to... I was shocked. Adam Driver and sexy situations. I think I full put my hand over my mouth in like a... In fact, it gets in there. what we should be talking about as well is there's some really outrageous situations in the White Lotus too, between Armand and the young, what's his name? The guy played by Lucas Gage. That's it, Dylan. Lucas Gage. Just, yeah, actually, this has been quite a sexy episode. I just don't think I'll ever stop thinking about that particular scene in, in, the, in a way that's just a bit painful. It was very rhythmic. He's so tall. He's very long. He's a long boy. Oh god, okay, let's finish now. Um you can find us online with Twitter at the Thirst. You can find us on all the usual podcast places, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean by searching for the Thirst, Instagram, we're at the Thirst Pod, our blog is the thirstpod.wordpress.com. And if you are still using Facebook, then you can find us by searching for the Thirst Pod too. Thanks. Bye. I should probably update our Facebook. Bye. <laughs>